This is the Advocatus Intimitati Podcast with Matt Lore, Episode 2. Hello, and welcome to Episode 2 of the Advocatus Intimitati Podcast, released on Monday, the 9th of September, 2019. I'm your host, Matt Lore, and in the first half I will cover this week's top headlines in privacy law and regulation and share my thoughts on them followed in the second half by a discussion of just what it means when we talk about protecting personal information. In major news this week, the Federal Trade Commission announced a $170 million settlement against Google and YouTube for violations of the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, or COPPA. COPPA requires parental consent for the collection of personal information on children under 13 years old, including by using persistent identifiers to track users across the Internet. The FTC, along with the New York Attorney General, alleged that YouTube violated COPPA by presenting behavioral advertising and placing tracking cookies in the user's browser on videos that were directed at children. While YouTube had claimed to be a general audience site, they used the site's popularity with children to market their advertising platform to toy makers, according to the complaint. The penalty of $170 million is the largest ever for violations of COPPA. In addition, the settlement requires YouTube to implement a system whereby channel owners on their platform can specify that their content is directed at children, and YouTube must obtain verifiable parental consent before collecting personal information from users of those videos, including by use of tracking cookies for behavioral advertising. Not everyone is happy with the settlement, however. The FTC voted 3-2 to two to approve it, with Commissioners Rohit Chopra and Rebecca Kelly Slaughter dissenting. In a statement, Commissioner Chopra alleges that the settlement is too lenient relative to actions against smaller companies that ran afoul of COPPA. In contrast to those cases, no individual defendants were named in the complaint, and Chopper questions whether the amount of the penalty is even enough to wipe out YouTube's profits from the violation, using financial figures that amusingly have been redacted in the copy of the statement on the FTC's website. Commissioner Slaughter, in a separate statement, points to the lack of any requirement on the part of YouTube to verify that channel owners properly designate their videos as directed at children. She believes that this requirement of designation may in fact give YouTube a basis to claim ignorance of child-directed content on their platform, and that since many channel owners are based outside the United States and not subject to the FTC's authority, violations of COPPA on YouTube's platform will persist. I share the dissenting commissioner's concerns. Since YouTube is part of Google, we unfortunately don't have precise financial data for it. But estimates by eMarketer.com indicated that $170 million could be barely a percent and a half of YouTube's ad revenue this year. But as Commissioner Slaughter indicates in her statement, this might not be the end of the story. The attorneys general in the 49 other states retain the power to pursue their own enforcement actions against YouTube. A new iPhone app released in China caused a furor from users last week. Zhao, which allows users to upload photographs of their face that are then superimposed on celebrities and video clips, quickly went viral after its release on August 30th, becoming the most downloaded app in China over the weekend. But the makers of the app very quickly came under fire from users over the terms of their privacy policy, which reportedly gave the company perpetual and transferable rights to any content uploaded by users, and gave the company permission to use their photographs for marketing purposes. Users were also concerned about the storage and security of their biometric information. The Chinese messaging app WeChat reportedly banned users from sharing videos created by Zhao on their platform. Momo, the Chinese social networking company that created the app, updated the privacy policy for Zhao on September 3rd to require explicit consent from users for the sharing or use of their personal information and to allow users to delete that information. 
in a post on Weibo, like Twitter, but for China. The company also stated that they do not process biometric information, but rather that their technology relies on a simple overlay of a user's photograph onto the video. I find the backlash from users and the swift response from the company an encouraging sign that concerns over privacy are entering the consumer consciousness, even in, or perhaps especially in, a country with massive state surveillance like China. But the release of this app has also renewed fears about deepfakes, or the use of manipulated images, video, or audio to influence public opinion, particularly in the electoral context. If this kind of editing can be done automatically on a massive scale, one shudders to think what more sophisticated technology in the hands of a skilled and motivated actor could produce. In a world where rumors and conspiracy theories abound on social media, and the leaders of even supposedly free and democratic societies dismiss criticism as fake news, such deepfakes could be incredibly destabilizing and destructive when there is no longer anyone trusted to be the arbiter of truth. And while this company claims their technology does not use biometric templates, the proliferation of biometric scanning technology, including in modern smartphones, creates the possibility of physical surveillance on a massive scale, both for political and commercial purposes. On that note, the New York Post reported this week that Amazon is testing a new biometric identification system for checking out at their Amazon Go stores and possibly Whole Foods in the future. Amazon's Go stores currently require shoppers to check in using their phones, then record the items they remove from shelves using an array of sensors throughout the store. This new system, which is reportedly touchless, would allow shoppers to identify themselves simply by placing their hand in front of a camera and analyzing hand geometry rather than the fingerprint patterns already used by sensors on many murdered smartphones. Citing unnamed sources, the Post says the system, codenamed Orville, is being tested by workers at Amazon's offices in New York to purchase items from vending machines and employee break rooms. I'm going to take this report with a grain of salt, since no other publications have independently confirmed it, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if Amazon is working on something like this. Like one-click ordering on their site, it is in Amazon's interest to have as little friction in the purchase process as possible. Now that they're moving into the brick-and-mortar space with Amazon Go and their acquisition of Whole Foods, it's only natural that they apply the same techniques here as well. But using biometric identifiers is very troubling from a privacy perspective. While you can cancel a credit card or close a bank account, your biometric patterns are yours for life. And the patterns become greater with the increased use of non-invasive recognition techniques. Requiring a finger to be touched to a sensor is one thing, but facial or now hand geometry has the potential to be read from across the room and could enable pervasive surveillance. This is one reason why, as the United States has been slow to adopt strong privacy laws, a couple of states have moved ahead with regulating biometrics. Illinois, for instance, has the Biometric Information Privacy Act, which requires notice and consent to collect biometric identifiers and imposes limitations on retention and disclosure. This law also allows individuals to sue companies for violations, and this past January, the Illinois Supreme Court ruled that a person need not prove they suffered any actual harm to collect $1,000 in liquidated damages specified by the Act. So even if Amazon moves ahead with this technology, I don't expect to see it in stores in my hometown of Chicago anytime soon. Today I'm going to talk about the concept of personal information, or personal data. This is a fundamental issue in the world of data protection and privacy, but one which often confuses those not intimately familiar with the field. In my day job, I often speak with engineers who assure me that their particular application doesn't handle 
P-I-I. This causes me to bite my tongue and shout in my mind, stop saying P-I-I. Why? Because P-I-I is an ill-defined and U.S.-centric term that isn't relevant for today's privacy laws. A 2007 memo from Clay Johnson of the Office of Management and Budget, part of the Executive Office of the President of the United States, defined personally identifiable information, or PII, as information which can be used to distinguish or trace an individual's identity, such as their name, social security number, biometric records, etc., alone, or when combined with other personal or identifying information which is linked or linkable to a specific individual, such as date and place of birth, mother's maiden name, etc. Interestingly, two years later, the National Institute for Standards and Technology borrowed their definition of PII not from that 2007 memo, but from a 2008 report from the U.S. Government Accountability Office, part of the legislative branch, which defined both personal information and personally identifiable information as any information that can be used to distinguish or trace an individual's identity, such as name, social security number, date and place of birth, mother's maiden name, or biometric records, and any other information that is linked or linkable to an individual, such as medical, educational, financial, and employment information. Did you catch that? It's easy to miss the difference, but the first definition covered direct identifiers, like name or social security number, alone, or in combination with other information. The second definition, however, covered any information relating to an individual, so long as it was linked or linkable to that individual. Imagine you had a spreadsheet. That spreadsheet contains a single column labeled favorite color. The values are blue, green, yellow, etc. Is that PII? Well, it's not directly identifying, so it doesn't fit the first prong of either definition. But what about the second prong? By the GIO definition, that would hinge on whether the information was linkable to individuals. A favorite color, standing alone, likely would not be unless it was very unique. Pink is probably not linkable, but Pantone 2037C might be. But according to the first definition, this would still not be PII unless it were combined with something that was directly identifying, like name or social security number. A single attribute like favorite color standing alone is usually not the source of concern. Rather, it is when several attributes, none directly identifying, are combined for a single individual that the risk of re-identification increases. For example, research has shown that 87% of Americans can be uniquely identified by the combination of gender, date of birth, and zip code. In my experience, the understanding of those engineers who talk about PII is closer to the first definition than the second. They may say they don't store PII, but they will store an IP address or a unique value in a tracking cookie, along with various other information associated with that individual. The new European law, the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, does not use the term PII. Rather, it regulates use of personal data, which is defined as any information relating to an identified or identifiable natural person. It further defines identifiable natural person as 
one who can be identified directly or indirectly, in particular by reference to an identifier such as name, an identification number, location data, an online identifier, or to one or more factors specific to the physical, physiological, genetic, mental, economic, cultural, or social identity of that natural person. Well, that's a mouthful. Well, Recital 26 clarifies that the GDPR does not govern the use of anonymous information that only applies if all means reasonably likely to be used to identify the data subject would be unsuccessful. One must consider the possibility of singling out, which is when the information of a particular individual is compared to the putative anonymous data to determine whether the data could be for that particular individual. While the European Union with the GDPR has adopted a very strong definition of personal data, California, as is their one, has kicked it up a notch with their definition of personal information in the California Consumer Privacy Act, or CCPA. As of the date of this episode, it defines personal information as information that identifies, relates to, describes, is capable of being associated with, or could reasonably be linked directly or indirectly with a particular consumer or household. That's right, it doesn't even need to be able to be associated with a particular natural person, which is particularly applicable when it comes to IP addresses, of which an entire household may share one. Just last week, a chamber of Spain's Supreme Court ruled that electricity usage data, such as the hours that the lights are on, which rooms are illuminated, or which appliances are plugged in, is personal data under the GDPR. This was in a case that questioned the legality of the electric utility providing data to a government regulator as required by Spanish law. This underscores the point that all data in any way derived from the characteristics or actions of a natural person should be assumed to be personal data unless it can be shown that there is no reasonable chance to reassociate that data with a natural person, or in California, replace natural person with household. So if you work in this space, remember, it's not PII, it's personal data, and it's a whole new ballgame. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.